I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be having this discussion here today. The Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, as it's formally known, 20 years on. And by 20 years, of course, we mean 20 years to the day since the referendums in, the, in Northern Ireland and in the Republic on that Good Friday Agreement and those discussions which had been included some, some weeks before. And those, uh, that referendum won by, crucially, a majority of both communities in the North, narrowly, on the Unionist side, and uh, supported by 94% of those in the Republic. So we're here to discuss the consequences a long 20 years since then. We put up various inspirational photographs around the, uh, the Institute, and here you have on the, uh, uh, the wall by way of uh, atmosphere for this particular discussion. Um, a tribute, in a way, to that. I'm delighted to have here three people who are extremely well-placed to discuss this. Paul Bew, advisor to uh, David Trimble at the time, Lord, Lord Bew. Now, uh, David Trimble, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party at the time, and then First Minister of Northern Ireland, and he's now chair of the Committee on Standards and Public Life. Mark Durkin, who was a member of the SDLP delegation during the negotiations and was Minister for Finance and Deputy First Minister between 1998 and 2007. And Tim O'Connor, member of the Irish government negotiating team during the, 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 those negotiations, later Secretary of General Chief of Staff to the President Mary McAleese. We are delighted to, as I said, to be having this discussion and I want to begin with really 20 years ago or even just 20 and a bit years ago um, as, as, as everyone was in the run-up to those talks and uh, to, to, to the agreement that culminated those talks. And Paul, I, I wanted to start with you. you know, what did it feel like then? Did it seem as if it was going to get over the wire and what were the things that, made, that, that actually took it there? Well, in the period of just about the agreement, there are two separate issues. One is getting over the wire and the referendum, and that was the double community acceptance, yeah. which I honestly didn't think in the last few days was going to happen, but did mercifully. On the, we forget certain things, but actually, I hope Mark agrees with me about this, one of the key things in the mid-90s was that the unionist community and political class had to break with its fear of cross-border and north-south institutions that there was already a tacit acceptance of some form of power sharing. But it was the framework document and the, in my opinion, inflated and exaggerated debate around it when published by the major government uh, and the decision by the Blair government in some ways to translate it downwards and the agreement of the STLP that some pragmatic adjustments could be made. The key thing is the Irish dimension is what I'm talking about. And I think one of the key things in getting an agreement was to actually get unionist acceptance of an Irish dimension that would be workable and pragmatic. And a lot is owed to the SDLP because during the negotiations, especially in the last week, uh, um, they you know, could easily have taken a stronger or more green position on the Irish dimension if they'd wanted. Um, but, 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 uh, sorry, we tried to. You tried. <laughs> All right, but, you, but nonetheless, a compromise was, and that was to, because we, since then we talk a lot about issues since 
the agreement was established as policing, decommissioning and all these other painful issues. And we've actually forgotten that the big problem in the mid-90s was the unionist political classes allergic attitude towards the, the, the Irish dimension. There were key... So is it just, you just spell out for us what you mean by the Irish But The idea that an agreement had to include not just some local dimension of power sharing, not just an east-west arrangement between Britain and Northern Ireland, but an, 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 an arrangement which reflected the, the island of Ireland and institutions which were co cooperation mm -hmm. on the island of Ireland. And that, from I would say, from nineteen from nineteen ninety five to nineteen ninety eight, was the key stumbling block uh, in the unionist community's mind about doing a deal. Um, I was always of the view that, while I considered other fears to be and complaints to be perfectly reasonable, that their fears on this point of view were exaggerated. But the framework document did use language like the North Sides institution be dynamic, executive, harmonising. You remember all that. The actual agreement doesn't include, this may sound ridiculously petty, it doesn't include the D word, the E word or the H word. It's an agreement and the areas for initial cooperation are very, very pragmatic and low-key. Well, I, I happen to know, I'm afraid in my heart are all the details, I will not inflict them on you. But essentially they were intended to be low, pragmatic and low-key. And the, it was a decision to, uh, uh, which both the Irish government went along with in the, in, in the week because the original negotiating paper with the Irish government was a bit more grandiose. The uh, um, decision by both Bertie Ahern and the STLP leadership to say, all right, we'll make this a bit more low-key, we'll make this a bit more pragmatic, which was the clue to the decision of David Trimble to reach that agreement. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's the idea of getting the North-South institutions into a practical place and one of the, and pragmatic place, one of the remarkable successes is they are have been totally non-controversial from, from, from the time of the agreement. We have numerous other controversies and, and we've now won about the Irish language, we had a lot of trouble with decommissioning for many years, entirely real problem, not a false problem, uh, policing, policing reform, but actually that, all these were things that took up years of your time off and so on, but all these things were, were, were um, became not, you know, became the issue of the day in the first decades of the 20th century and took up ages of time and they were real issues. But the one that was killing people in the 1990s, which was, which was North-South cooperation, suddenly moved into this benign space, is still in a benign space. One of the reasons why this is such a tricky moment is that actually because of the David Trimble talked at the time in his speech about ending the Cold War between North and South. Unfortunately, it's a re-erupted for Brexit relations. Nobody's fault entirely. Uh, um, but nonetheless, it has re-erupted. But these institutions are not problematic. And one way of reading the transitional agreement, uh, which Theresa May agreed to in December the 8th, is to look at these institutions as playing a positive mm. role mm. Uh, in, in, in the interpretation mm. of not the new North side and the regulatory arrangements that might be in place. So that's all, but I, I want to say one thing because it's way, you know, the, 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 it then led to a deal on strand one. Now I have to say this, that on strand one, yes. all the key thinking, oh, yeah. this was the internal arrangements yeah. and all that. Once it became clear that you could, that the SDLP was prepared to reach this deal on, reach this more moderate position on the original, it's now extended, terms of what would be done north and south. The original deal is actually small beer. It's things like teacher training qualifications being recognised between north and south, which never even quite happened anyway. 
but it's really small beer. Originally, unionists had read the framework document that meant harmonization education on the northern side. How exactly anybody but Paul Pott could harmonize the educational systems of north and south is quite beyond me. And it never did mean the Pol Pot kind of administrative deal. But the move into these low-key, the things you could touch and feel, ah, yes, that's what we're committed to. And we can do that in the World Book volume is important. But at this point, I have to say this, that the thinking on strand one and the arrangements of strand one was actually essentially Marx. And I mean, this, this is a, there's, a, there's a crucial thing to understand about Sinn Féin, I should explain to you, not involved in this discussion. And we're staying mm -hmm. up to the very end. There would be no mm -hmm. storm, no look. This, by the way, again, you have to make this effort to think back into this world. The, the storm that they are now, in many ways, the masters of, that they have so many members in, that they're so actively involved in, was something right up to the end. They were saying, Adam's at the last plenary. Get this straight, there will be no. Get this straight, there will be no assembly. The reason why there is an assembly and the structures that were so designed for it, uh, and, and, and you know, is very much the work of Mark, and that's a good point mm. for you to start. Mm. <laughs> Mark, you're being paid a lot of compliments there. Um, possibly not all ones you want to accept. I, I, I might be being blamed for something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For moderating your position, so on. How, 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 how did it seem to you, and did it seem? Like a very close call. Yeah, yeah, it was touch and go at times. There were times even in that final week of the agreement that, you know, uh, an agreement looked very far away and then there would be turns in the discussion and in the mood and suddenly an, an agreement maybe sounded closer mm. uh, than you were uh, expecting it to be. I mean, there had been a significant bilateral between ourselves and the Ulster Unionists just about 10 days out and I can remember it was Seamus Malm and... Uh, Reg Empey kind of led in the conversation and it was just about, look, are we going to get anything to an agreement here or not? And it was just that kind of helicopter style conversation. Imagine we're up in a helicopter looking down on the positions of the respective parties. Is there enough there to cluster uh, uh, agreement? And so they were obviously pointing out, you know, rough similarities, but there were still huge differences because at that point the Ulster Unionist Party weren't even agreeing that there would be ministers in uh, an assembly. Mm. Uh, because, you know, going right back in the negotiations, we had this problem that, you know, essentially unionists were trying to say, well, we can't be seen because Seamus Malm had predicted. Everybody says Seamus Malm described the Good Friday Agreement as sign deal for slow learners. It was actually at the start of the negotiations he predicted that what we would get was sign deal for slow learners. So you almost at this point of where unionists kind of felt, well, we can't agree to ministers or an executive in the north because that's executive power sharing. And if we've ministers in the north, you're going to look for a council of ministers uh, for the island when it comes to north south. And as far as we're concerned, that's the reason why sign deal broke. So we'd actually gone through a lot of negotiation where we were talking in circles at stages, you know, because uh, unionists were saying we can have sharing of committee positions uh, by the hunt, but we don't want executive uh, authority as such because then you'll get executive agencies north-south. Mm. Mm. And we actually, there was a period before the substantive negotiations where some of us and some of the Ulster Unionist delegation, we actually would go to a room and basically do language proofing. Uh, with each other so uh, that we wouldn't be provoking or needling each other when it came to the actual substantive negotiations. And that's why, you know, we had it, it was very clear, we were being told, you won't have anything that is called an All-Ireland Council, it won't be All-Island, it won't be Council of Ministers. Well, people are going to meet North and South, yeah, so that's why yeah, it's North-South. And 
there'll be, well, if they meet, they'll take decisions. No, there's no decisions. And those decisions will have to be uh, executed and carried out. No, no executed, because I don't mean executive. And there are no agencies. And so that's why, well, if they, if they, if, if they meet and decide something, they can decide, well, if they meet, they can agree. Yes, they can agree. So they can meet, they can agree, and what they agreed can be implemented. And there won't be easy. And that's why the language is as clunky in the agreement as north-south implementation bodies. You know, so that's that's mm. where, where it came through and, and washed through. So but even though we had done that at an earlier period and in fact prior to the substantive negotiations beginning, uh, still when we were in the negotiations we had a lot of these circular uh, arguments. We were the only party that was proposing that ministers would be appointed by the haunt on that inclusive basis. For a long time we were grappling with the fact that there was a bit of a hole in our proposals because what happens, are you appointing the first minister by the haunt and the deputy first minister by the haunt, in which case you might have two unionists, mm. uh, you know, because it might be the two unionist parties had the biggest number of seats, the first and second number of seats, so what do you do here? And it was only uh, just over a month out from the agreement that I then had the idea of you make it a joint office. Uh, of first and deputy first minister and have it jointly elected because there was a stage in the cross-party discussions where John Alderdice of Alliance was saying, well, what if we make it that the first minister is responsible for coordinating among whoever's running the departments internally and the deputy first minister is responsible for coordinating the lateral relationships north-south, east-west and uh, EU. I mean, we're kind of saying, yeah, but that'll end up tension. How do you decide what's internal and what's a lateral relationship and all of the rest of it? So it was to help to solve uh, a number of problems, in particular because a lot of the other parties who you know, didn't warm initially to the idea of elective inclusion, that parties could get appointing ministers uh, according to their mandate under the Haunt or St. Lague or whatever. But people were saying, yeah, but those ministers are just going to entirely do their own thing. There's no collective mandate or endorsement. So the joint election of the first and deputy first minister and them, them being the core of the administration mm. was part of that. But because even in those final few days, we still didn't have the Ulster Unionists agreeing at that stage that there would be an executive committee mm. as such. So agreeing then. So some of the language that we had in for the functions of first and deputy first minister was just that they would coordinate the work between meetings and between departments that they would convene uh, meetings. It wasn't uh, an executive committee as such. And if you look at some of the wording of the agreement that's ended up in strand three, particularly in the intergovernmental conference, you find clunky wording about those executive representatives of the Northern Ireland uh, administration. Mm. So we, we didn't even catch up and smooth uh, mm -hmm. and realign uh, that wording in strand three to capture the fact that there was an executive. So when you, when you had that level of disagreement uh, going on and that level of distance on, so, but we knew when Seamus Mallon and I put the idea of the Joint Office of First and Deputy First Minister to uh, David Trimble, and Reg Empey, and this was only a couple of weeks out uh, from the agreement, we knew he was interested whenever he, because I had listed it was A to T or A to U, so there was something like 20 or 21 roles and responsibilities or whatever uh, that they had. And David Trimble looked at it and said, I don't like the way it's written. It's written too much in the language of uh, responsibilities, not power. And in particular, there's no power of patronage. And, well, Seamus Malin and I knew, well, He's not ruling out the idea, he just wants the idea uh, to be done in a yeah. different and better and uh, stronger way. Yeah. But as, as Paul says, in that final week you had what was called the Mitchell text was issued on the, was issued on the Monday. 
there was a neuralgic reaction by the Ulster Unionist Party and indeed by the Alliance Party to the Strand 2 text and that mm. they saw it as overweening as far too much uh, that too much that the the structures were there as givens that too much was being front loaded uh, into it and they reacted very very strongly we were left with a position that the Strand 1 paper in the Mitchell paper was very, very poor for us, as, as, as we saw it. it. It didn't have the kind of substance that we needed to have in the arrangements uh, for the institutions within Northern Ireland itself. So we were then caught in a situation where the Ulster Unionists and even Alliance wouldn't talk to us about Strand 1 or anything else for a couple of days. Their whole concentration was in getting Strand 2 watered down and the list mm, of functions mm, whittled mm. down uh, in Strand 2. And so our problem was... Will, will we ever be able to recover and get any weight into uh, Strand 1? So what we had to do was continue to work on our own uh, proposals. We basically did a composite paper which had all of the Mitchell text for Strand 1 plus all of the text that we wanted in Strand 1 uh, plus that text in versions that we thought might suit uh, the mm. Ulster Unionist Party. Mm. And we concentrated on the smaller parties and in particular we got the Loyalist parties to back some of our ideas and they were comfortable with things like the Pledge of Office and the, what won the, the Progressive Unionist Party over was that I put a line into the Pledge of Office which was to serve all of the people of Northern Ireland equally. So they said, mm. well the fact that you have that the ministers take taking office will say it's not all the people and it's mm. ambiguous as to who those people are. That they were just saying the very fact that we were saying Northern Ireland, they, were, they regarded that as a big deal. Mm. So because that was in the Pledge of Office, that's uh, what swung them. So. It meant that by the time then it came to the Ulster Unionists, whenever they had succeeded in getting Strand 2 diluted mm. uh, to their taste, and were mm. then ready to talk to us on Strand 1, we had already lined up a lot of the other parties mm. behind mm. the ideas and the language mm. that we had. Thanks for that. And I'm going to come back to quite a, quite a few of those, those points. Tim, just on these first thoughts of whether it felt like a close call, what it was that, that brought this one over the edge after yeah. all these years. Thank you, Brian Ryan. First of all, just thanks to you and the Institute for Government for the, uh, I think, for the wisdom of your decision to hold the event on, on the 22nd of May as the 20th anniversary of the actual referenda, because I think, in a way, the, the defining, one of the defining features about the Good Friday Agreement is not just a political agreement between the politicians, important as that is, or not just an agreement between the governments, as important as that is, it's actually endorsed by the people north and south. And so, to a certain extent, it's the sovereign will of the people uh, of both parts of Ireland. And that's a very profound reality of Good Friday that's very different. So, uh, well done to you on we that. We might come on and to the consequences of other referendums at some uh, point. Yes, indeed. Well, Later point. Yeah. No. I guess just, just very quickly, I'll give you one quick, I'll give you one quick sort of... Um, a uh, sort of little indication of how uh, high the Everest was. I, mm. I, I'm not sure exactly, Paul, when this was, but there was a Belfast Telegraph poll um, some days before uh, the 10th of April, which where the people were asked, uh, do you expect the, the talks going on up on the hill in Stormont to be successful? And the very encouraging answer was, I think 91% said they didn't. <laughs> so that's what you call low expectations. But it also gives you a sense, though, that, that actually... That actually, that so, and the other thing is that for all of us involved, I was an Irish government official working with uh, Taoiseach Bertie Hearn and the ministers, and that's so, you know one of the, the backroom guys. And the, the, the thing here, here we are now 20 years on, you know, mm. talking about it all in London 20 years later, but actually, we never had had success 
with a negotiation of this kind before. I mean, any of us involved, they had all, okay, you could say the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985 was a, but of course that was an agreement between the two governments, but certainly between all of the parties, the, eff the effort in, in 1973, 74 in Sunningdale, that had mm. collapsed because of, largely be, because of the issue that Paul has been describing, uh, North-South relations, the Irish dimension. So I suppose the atmosphere was one of two things. One is that it's really uphill and probably we're up against it and you know the pessimists have a, a field day in Northern Ireland <coughs> apparently the all the journalists any journalist in the audience will know that that apparently that the media in, in Northern Ireland who've been covering it all over the years the troubles uh, when, a, when a rookie new journalist arrived on the beat from outside the first word of advice from the guys was be pessimistic and you won't be far wrong you know mm -hmm. so so basically kind of pessimism I would say was that, so but at the same time the, the other piece though was that we had a sense that that actually there was a real chance here and we mm -hmm. had to what I call the wit principle whatever it takes we all had to walk the extra mile we haven't we, we're now sort of 25 minutes into the conversation we haven't mentioned George Mitchell yet now he was a key mm -hmm. factor as well mm -hmm. I think that obviously the, the, the two governments and the role of Tony Blair and and Bertie Hearn uh, was was uh, mm. huge. I think the parties, I think Paul and, and Mark have described it very, very well, the role of the parties was central. And then you had this American piece with, with a, a president of the White House following everything almost like minute by minute. Um, and then the guy he sent us as the as the effectively the, the yeah. chair, but there were there were two other chairs. There were two yeah. other um, Harry Holkery and uh, John de Chastelin, but George Mitchell was the chair of the, yeah. and, and so he played uh, an important role, particularly in the closing yeah. piece as well. So you had all of these. So there was a sense and, and just of just going, going to your first point about the uh, referendum as well. I mean, wh what do you think had changed about public opinion? Well, well, to make it well, such it's, a you know, there's a slightly different. It's a slightly different question because 91% right, yeah. were pessimistic that yes, these guys yes. will ever do yes, anything. You know, so it's not so much that we wouldn't agree with whatever they yes, come out with. Yes. So, so basically, when you know, we had, of course, you have to have an all-nighter. No, no serious negotiation. You know, can worth its uh, worth its name. Can, can mm. get through it. And so there was uh, the, the, on the and George. The other thing I want to say to you is George Mitchell about two and a half weeks. Uh, was it marked before the um, before the the tenth of April? But sometime in late March, he called us all together, all the negotiators in a room, and he said, "Because George had been here since 1995, and I can still remember his speech." He said, "I've been with you now for three years. It's been fascinating. I've enjoyed your stories. They're great stories. Uh, there's a lot more, I would imagine. But in those three years, he said, a son has been born to me in New York." Uh, and I would like to see him before he goes to college. <laughs> so I am nominating, um, uh, I'm nominating Thursday the 9th of April as the deadline by which uh, our talks, and there was a kind of a collective gasp around the room, but deadline decisions, but actually it turned out to be, now you can only kind of, you can only do, but, but yeah. once, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was really a tremendous gap. So I would say all of those forces yeah. were then in play. And I think that, I, I want to mention one other thing, the human factor. So um, I, Paul is absolutely right in describing, uh, it's a good thing to remind us that the, you know, the, the Irish dimension, the North-South dimension, how profound that was in the run-up and, and how much it has now, of course, disappeared off the scene as a, as a kind of a, um, a driving issue. But in, that, in the middle of that week, everybody had to kind of make their call about where they stood on, on issues that are really important. But Bertie Hearn was mm. the Taoiseach, my boss at the time. It wasn't a very particular situation. I, I want to acknowledge our ambassadors who were with us this evening, Adrian O'Neill, who has who played a huge role in all of this as well. But 
but on the Monday of Good Friday of that week, his mother died. So he's in Belfast trying to pull up, you know, trying to co, uh, uh, you know, co-oversee probably the most serious political negotiation of his life, and he's up and down to Dublin for the, um, for the, for the funeral of his mother. And he made some big calls that week as well about the kind of compromise that were going to have to be taken, and that's mm. kind of on the public record. Mm. But. The, the, the Mitchell one, as it was called, the first draft was kind of kitchen sink, north-south, and therefore there was clearly going to be no agreement. John Taylor, deputy leader, said he wouldn't touch it with a 40-foot barge pole, so it, you know, something had to give here, and basically there was a compromise, a fundamental compromise was made in the middle of that week by the, uh, on the if you like, on the, on the Irish nationalist side, which was to pull back very significantly uh, on the north-south reach, but on the basis you get agreement, half a loaf, etc., and the same with the, and then I think the other piece of the equation that was profound was the, the fantastic work that Mark did on the Strand One stuff, working with, with uh, Paul's uh, party. Uh, I think putting all those pieces together, and then there were the other elements, which of course were very, very important yeah. decommissioning prisoners uh, and, and all of the other pieces and then they came together in the in the all-nighter on the Thursday night and by 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 Friday morning uh, by by dawn on Good Friday it was all pretty this is kind of yeah. dawn on Good Friday there was a kind of a growing sense that my god this is we have an agreement and I'll just very quickly in 30 seconds tell you we then had the most awful four and a half hours because, uh, and I want to tell you as well, we suffered from a thing, it's a very dangerous thing called premature champagne <laughs> on Good Friday. Not to be recommended um, because there was one last sort of big, the, the basically, again, it's on the public record that I think when, and Paul can speak more about this, but the Ulster Unionist Party, I think when they saw the totality of everything pulled together um, in terms of what was to be signed up to, there was, a, there was a, a very difficult four and a half hours and credit to David Trimble and Tony Blair. It was la largely, the rest of us were out, but I was, we were sitting there basically with a, and pessimists were having a field day. Oh, we knew it was too good to, to be true and it wouldn't. But then at half four, uh, miraculously, <laughs> apparently uh, David Trimble felt he had what he needed. He said, I'm calling George Mitchell out to convene the plenary. And he did. And at about quarter to five, everybody gathered and the miracle of the Good Friday Agreement mm. was born. Thank you for the three of, uh, uh, the three of you for taking us just so vividly back to that uh, almost kind of, you know, 48 hours of that time. I then want you, want you to perform um, almost as difficult a task, which is to shoot forward at least 19 years. I mean, we'll, we'll deal with the fall of the, 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 the government in Stamont, um, Stamont last, um, last year separately. But there were a lot of achievements there in 20 years, a lot of things set up, policing, all these things. On the other hand, you know, the kind of moderate uh, compromises and everything that we've been talking about um, perhaps fell away as uh, more um, you know, hardline uh, parties in the DUP and Sinn Féin became more and more popular. So you know, what, what happened in those, those 20, 19 years? Well, I'll try not to start saying something sounds very pedantic. It drives me mad when I keep seeing the papers again and again. The Good Friday Agreement was signed 20 years ago. Mm. It wasn't signed, like the Act of mm. Union, it wasn't signed. It comes into being and implicit in everything that Mark mm. and Tim has said. Uh, there were rules for these talks, and you, there was going to be an agreement if you delivered a majority of either the Nationalist Bloc or the Unionist Bloc. In the case of those days, the SDLP had a majority of the Nationalist vote. Mm. So the SDLP had a, could deliver the agreement. 
if they were determined that was a good deal, they had the power to live on their side. David Trimble actually had slightly short of that. He had 48, but he had a couple of them, which is why it's important what Mark did with the Progressive Unionist Party to take him slightly over the 50. Mm. But it's very important. It comes into being as sort of the political will and indeed the act of negotiation of these two parties. Um, it, it, it did not, Sinn Féin said on the day, Jeremy said, I'll, I'll get back to you, I have to take it. That's why the, the minutes are quite clear when asked by George Mitchell. The vote is other people. So these pictures of Jerry Adams' signature on the agreement or is no more, no, it's a football match, football player's signature. Mm. There is no, the political will came from those two parties. Yeah. The two parties who were destroyed. Let me say that morning when I was there at four or five in the morning. I remember, I don't think Mark's going to disagree with the Ulster Unionist, the SCP, were very pleased with themselves. Yeah. Uh, they believed the electorate would reward them for mm. a delivering peace and ending this wretched conflict. That was also there in, in their conversations. I have a very strong mm. sense of that. In fact, the electorate didn't. Mm. And that's a very complicated question as to why they didn't, whether they felt that they could only live with the deal by putting in their there are yeah. more aggressive politicians to actually implement it. You know, it certainly didn't expect the agreement. My own student, Tim's right about this. You must remember this, this is a top-down agreement. I mean, always talk about peace and the people, it's all, people wanted peace, so they never expected it. It was an elite war weariness on the IRA side. These political parties had, you know, got, always wanted something. In many respects, the agreement does reflect John Hume's long-term thinking and so on. All these things together reflected what unionism was. But the political pe people did not expect it. My students, I had 90 students the week before the agreement. It was Easter was early that year. And I said, by the time you come back in the holidays, there may be an agreement. And I was professor, peace processor. Shows what a bad teacher I must be. For weeks I'd been saying to this group, 514, you know, there could be an agreement, there's positive signs here. And of course, well, I, I hope there would be. And, and I'm dropping and drawing attention to mm. things in the reports that were positive and so on. And they told me 86 of them there is no going to be no agreement. Mm. That is the same as your. They just looked at me and said I was an idiot mm. when I said by the time you come back there might be an agreement. There was when they came mm. back mm. Uh, an, an agreement. But that's something. That, but the, the the rewards did not come to the people who actually created it in terms of that particular. Pro there's no question about that. Mm. It went first. So, so you say this. It went first on the national the side. To my surprise. It went, the Sinn Féin became the majority part and that's the side first. And once that happens, I mean, just as a matter of fact, it happened first in your community. And then it went, and the argument was we could have got a better deal if we'd had Sinn Féin. You remember all that, Mitchell McLaughlin's argument and so on. And it went first in your community and then, then, and re then subsequently, once it happened, you knew the DUP was going to finish off the UUP. I mean, it was going to, yeah. in, in the balance of the force. I didn't expect it to happen at all. About 2001, I think, by that general election, it was clear mm. that Sinn Féin was... In 2003, November 2003. Well, it, it, it went first in one, yeah. in one community, and then it, then it inevitably went very quickly in the next and killed, and, and killed off Trimble. Now, I've, I still don't know... Uh, or, or, you know, exactly, and maybe mark out the processes by which uh, the two communities arrived at the conclusion that they were going to accept the template of this agreement, but not the people who created it. Uh, <laughs> and, but there's a fundamental dishonesty at the heart of Northern Irish politics, which, which reflects what happened there. I just have to say that. I just want to say something slightly more about why it's absolutely true what Bertie did, because it bears on our current problems. It's absolutely true that Bertie had a very difficult week and behaved very well and very wisely and decently, in my opinion. Uh, not entirely to my surprise, because I had talked to him a few times beforehand. 
but nonetheless he did. But he was put under, and read Alistair Campbell's mm. diary, strong pressure by Tony Blair on both the, it was, there was, this is not all love and peace. Not even then between the British and Irish governments. There was pressure and leverage, and you can't let us die in Bertie, you mustn't stick to this document, and so on. It looked, everybody here is, Alistair Campbell said in his diaries, Blair said, everybody here is mad. They fail, nobody will care. But if you haven't, if the Irish government hasn't been a party to agreement, the British Parliament's going to look on this in an unhappy way. Now, that where there's no such leverage, there's no such relationship leverage or whatever it is at this moment between Theresa May and, and mm. Leo Radcliffe. I'm just saying, that's what did happen that week. That's a matter equally well documented, yeah. as well as, and yeah. it's also true, I don't know how much pressure Bertie had to be applied, because Bertie was already 80-90% in the place that this was yes. a deal you couldn't turn down. Yes, yeah. But there was, it, mm. it, it, this, there is power politics mm. going on. Mm. It's not all you know, people becoming better human beings. There's power politics going on in, 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 mm. uh, as well there. And it isn't and an understanding or a closeness between the two prime ministers, even in a tough moment, which we're miles from now. And that's mm. one of our mm. difficulties at this moment. Mm. Well, I, I want to yeah. take us up to the difficulties at the yeah. moment. Mark, can you yeah, take us just, through this, yeah, this 20 just, years up to? Yeah, just taking up on, on some of those points, I can remember early in the evening of Holy Thursday, uh, in a bilateral we were doing with uh, Tony Blair. Tony Blair actually said to us, he said, I deliberately allowed the Irish to over-negotiate that Strand 2 paper uh, so that then they and you would have to be conceding uh, to the Ulster Unionists before. So whether it was true or not, but that's what he told us. That's, that, that's, that's what he told us. Whether, it was, whether, whether this was Mexican target practice, you know, paint the rings around the holes after you've, after you've shot at the sheet. But, uh, but he, he, he told us that this was deliberate because he used the word over-negotiate uh, a couple of times more to us. One, he was telling us then, he knew we were going to go into bilaterals with the Ulster Unionists and he was telling us that he thought there was a danger of us trying to over-negotiate what yeah. we wanted yeah. into Strand 1. And then he also expressed the fear that having completely stayed out of all of the detail of anything to do with Strand 1, that Sinn Féin would come in late and try yeah. to over-negotiate, taking a position mm. south of what we were ready to agree. Mm. And uh, that's when he asked John Hume uh, if he would go to uh, essentially talk to Gerry Adams and indicate that Tony Blair would be willing, if they didn't over-negotiate and yeah. if they were going to accept, he would yeah. be willing to do prison releases within a year. Yeah. Which, when John Hume reported back later, and Mo Moran was in the room, there was just an explosion of expletives. She went ape uh, at, at, at that, and that's something that was uh, pulled back and reversed. I know Jonathan Powell gives a different account of it, saying that Mo made the concession and that he and Tony Blair had to pull it back. I know, I was there, I know the way it, it, it happened, and I got it full blast I'm, from I'm, Mo. I'm really struck yeah. listening to this, how um, easy it is for the three of you to step right back into that night yeah. and those days and everything. Yeah. It's really, but really compelling. To, and you want to bring us a little bit But it is to go forward on... It is to go forward on some of that stuff. Also, on the, the word backstop has been used a lot at the minute. Whenever the Strand 1 stuff was whittled down and watered down and Seamus Mallon and John Hume were saying there's, very, there's less and less and this, you know, and I was saying there's nothing. There's nothing up front. This is all going to be subject to negotiation after the election and after the institutions. This is going to be a pub crawl of preconditions. And we were told, no, there's a backstop. See, the backstop is that all of the institutions, that everything has to be set up and established, including agreement on the first north-south bodies. It all has to happen by the 31st of October 1998. 
and of course that backstop mm. never happened. We were told that it would be leveraged. We were told that you know the two prime ministers, the Taoiseach and the prime minister, uh, knew how they were going to leverage it, and that David Trumbull knew that it would be leveraged. But in fact, it didn't happen. And why? It was because of the decommissioning issue. And that's where I do have to say. I wasn't happy. We weren't happy at quarter to five yeah. on the morning because we had seen the text on decommissioning. And when we negotiated the Strand 1 arrangements with the Ulster Unionist Party, which included stuff about the way in which either a minister might be no confidence out of office or where a party in the event of a breakdown of a ceasefire or something else might be excluded from office, we have been very careful to make sure that the language there related to the Mitchell principles and involved no specific mention of decommissioning. The Ulster mm, Union has mm, tried to get a specific mm, mention of decommissioning in, but given that that had bedeviled the, the talks process, the creation mm. of the talks process, and, the, and even then the actual starting of the substantive talks, we kept that out. But then along came this decommissioning text from the two governments, which then made reference to, which made explicit reference to the exclusion provisions in paragraph 25 of Stram 1. And we said, here's going to be a problem. And we went straight away mm. to both governments. And to our surprise then, the Irish government, Dermot Gallagher, a, a great servant of the country and these islands, God rest him, he told us, no, that's okay, that's our wording. And when he told us it was Tim's wording, I was saying, how can Tim O'Connor? And it wasn't, it wasn't that Tim, it was a different Tim, it was Tim Dalton. Don't but, we, but we said, that is going to be used to say, that is going to be, that is going to be used, that is going to be used to say that there is a precondition. That will be used to be a barrier in the way of the appointment of ministers in the exclusive And so it turned mm. out. Uh, mm. to be. That, 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 that problem was there. In terms of the agreement was based on layers of understanding. Some of it going back to previous talks, the 91 and 92 Brooke and Mayhew talks, because remember they were the first talks in the three strands. That's when the unionist parties had accepted mm. the idea of three sets of relationships, that there was going to have to be uh, outcomes in those strands. So it's important to remember that in our process we had a lot of givens created during the process. And so even then when it came to the DUP coming along to the St Andrews Agreement, you know, a lot of people were able to sign, sign on with things that they hadn't actually given. You know? yeah, so yeah. if you're in a divided situation, you're saying you need give and take. Sometimes the international community or those lateral players can help to create givens of the process that yeah. parties themselves yeah. don't have responsibility, take responsibility yeah. uh, for giving. And that's, a, that's a, yeah. a key lesson in our process. Also, parties generally had moved from making the mistake of turning their objectives into preconditions. I mean, essentially, Sinn Féin's position was, if there's a declaration of British intent to withdraw, then there can be a ceasefire. So, you know, essentially, their objective was a precondition. Similarly, unionists had gone through a thing. We have to know that there will be an alternative to and replacement of the Anglo-Irish Agreement before we'll agree to negotiations. Then eventually yeah. said, no, you have to negotiate to get the alternative. What we've got into now is almost an unlearning where parties are making the mistake of returning to making their objectives preconditions. All right, so this is what I want to ask you. So let me, let me, and when let you me do that, you, you paralyse politics, yeah. including your own politics. All right, so let me ask you directly, what do you think it would take to get a government again instalment from where we are now? Um, from, from where we are now? Uh, well, first of all, there, there needs to be much more serious engagement uh, by the two governments, and that is going to take them, people having a sense that the governments are on the same page uh, mm. in terms of this. Uh, I actually think there is going to need to be a point where uh, there is more visible bilateralism between the two governments in relation to some of the Brexit issues, mm. perhaps using the structures of the agreement itself. The British Aries Intergovernmental Conference that hasn't met uh, for years, it's meant to be responsible for overseeing the totality of relationships. It can meet at summit level. If Brexit doesn't affect the 
totality of relationships, I don't know what does. It might, but, but not in a helpful way. Yeah, you, no, well, well, there's no okay, reason why. The, the, the fact is, under the agreement, that's meant to meet at least once a year and at non-summit level uh, more often than that. But the fact is, it could be used. Also, if they were doing that and saying to the parties, and remember, that won't just be us as the two governments meeting, because the agreement says that we can bring in devolved ministers into those meetings, including to discuss non-devolved mm. matters as they affect Northern Ireland. And remember, a lot of the Brexit issues, mm. the sensitive Brexit mm. issues, are non-devolved, yeah. but they directly affect the life yeah, and needs of interest that are represented at a devolved level. So the two governments could actually be saying, well, look, some of the big serious issues, we're making you an offer. It's an offer that even Scotland and Wales mm. don't get of being able to be involved in serious trilateral engagement in those ways. And of, but. It means you have to restore the executive. Also, if you restore the executive, we're able to use the North-South Ministerial Council to handle a lot of these vexed North-South mm. issues. Mm. And you know, because you could be looking then and saying, well, when people talk about alignment, North and South, you know, and there's been a reaction, you know, by unionists, oh, alignment, as though it means some sort of entrapment. When the North-South Ministerial Council meets, say, in uh, the environment format, it's the ministers are often uh, agreeing how EU directives are going to be transposed north and south respectively. They're not done on identical terms because they're dealing often with different administrative structures uh, and other arrangements, but they're done in ways that are compatible and comparable. So they're within the bandwidth of understanding of uh, being aligned with the EU directives and they're broadly aligned uh, with each other. So we need to be thinking of the structures of the agreement uh, as some of the machinery and the toolkit to actually answer some mm. of the questions and the conundrums uh, that are there. And so I think if, if the two governments can find a way uh, of moving to those sort of levels, uh, it might actually help mm. to animate uh, more belief Thanks in the me. agreement, it's more belief uh, in the agreement itself and currency at this time. And also it means we're not just dealing with you know, that narrow band of issues uh, that mm. have been dividing Sinn Féin and the DUP in mm. recent times. Mm. Tim, how, how much of an issue is it in the Brexit negotiations not to have a government in Northern Ireland? Well, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very serious gap. I mean, it's not what any of us ever intended mm. that we would have this kind of a, a, a situation. And you know, it is in, in political terms right now in Northern Ireland. And Paul, 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 Mark lived there. I'm, I'm up and down a lot. I mean, there are many, many decisions just in terms mm -hmm. of the health service, education, a whole range of things. So, from the point of view of of just uh, of of just the normal politics, mm. it's very obviously then with Brexit, and of course part of the reason Brexit is, uh, I think somebody in this room described it as the Star Wars disturbance in the force. You know, so uh, mm. Brexit is the great disturbance in the force now. I think it's for the historians to decide whether it's Brexit is causing these tensions or whether it's Brexit is revealing, you know, mm, what lies what lies beneath actually all the time. And in some kind of a way, I have to say this: the Good Friday Agreement and and um, is ultimately a compromise around contradictions. I mean, at the heart of our polity is fundamental. Uh, absolute political contradictions, which historically have been prosecuted through through uh, through physical force, uh, that was the kind of debate. And I think the the big departure of Good Friday is that hopefully uh, for, forever it has removed the gun from politics in Ireland, something that it historically been there for for centuries. That's the big achievement. So the prize that we have to hold on to is peace. Uh, and I think that overall, that is a kind of a there. There is a pretty strong consensus right across the board. Now we, it's fragile. It's still fragile. We're 
if you think of historically, I was, I was looking at the, the Queen's speech again from 2011 and her historic visit to Ireland, and she had very interesting language about the complexity of the relationship between the two islands historically, and whether you're measuring that in hundreds of years. Well, the Good Friday Agreement is 20 years old. Measured against that, that's still a very short journey. Mm. So, so right now, the arrival of Brexit, which was, after all, our, our journey together in Europe, uh, the, you know, Ireland and Britain together in Europe since 1973, has been one of the great kind of scaffoldings and handrails of, to use Mark Durkin's language, uh, handrails of our relationship. And now to have that removed or on mm. its way to being removed is a big shock. It's a big shock for us. And so I think there's a lot of absorption going on. But I do think we need to get back to the two governments working in the, the closest mm. way together. The, the, the Northern Ireland issue has, has been at its best always when the two governments are working in the closest mm. uh, possible concert mm. together. Mm. And, and, and we need to get to there in, in, the, in, in the quickest order again. But I, I suppose I, I'm, in the, I'm in the glass half full. I'm in the, I still think we will find a way. I think when we think back to where we were 20 years ago and the, the size of the, the hill ahead of us and the we got agreement, um, um, I'm, still, I'm, I'm still very hopeful. And one last point, Bronwyn, on this. Mm. We haven't mentioned the demographics, you know. Mm. The, the demographic is changing. The, mm. the, the, uh, the assembly election in March of last year was a profound watershed moment where basically, for the first time ever, unionism lost its overall majority in the assembly as a whole. And now, now I, I know that the, the Westminster elections later on uh, saw a bit of a widening of the gap again, but right now the assembly where it is, there's just about a thousand votes between the two sides. So that's a huge new reality as well that's never been there before, and I think that's also being absorbed. So it is a, it's, a very, it's a very, very powerful time, but I, I, really, I really hope that the parties you know, can find a way. They say they're committed to, to doing so, and, mm. and, I, and I know certainly from an Irish government perspective, um, it, they, they, they really, really want to see that happening. Mm. Let, me, let me just ask then, I mean, the point you've taken us, and I want to go to questions because I think there's going to be a, uh, quite a few, um, whether you think that unification of, of Ireland is now uh, very much a live issue. Well, do you well, well, okay, but very brief time. Um, just to say, just very briefly on this, uh, we've actually had two polls on Monday which showed the support for unification in the North at 21% still. Uh, um, I was really amazed by uh, that Brexit has shifted to point, but I'm also amazed that Scottish nationalism has not progressed off of Brexit mm. as well. Mm. I'm just, I totally accept, by the way, that it is aggravated to the nth degree for reasons I very much sympathise with. Modern nationalist opinion all over the island are not so much. I totally accept that Brexit is completely uh, a different issue, but we are not in any space at all where, uh, uh, um, uh, you, you know, the only case for calling a border poll nine, you know, would be one to say, well, okay, Northern Ireland is different from, say, London, which voted overwhelmingly mm. against uh, leaving the EU, uh, because Northern Ireland can leave mm. and say in the EU. Mm. And you, should, you could ask the people tomorrow, do you want to join the Irish Republic, go into the EU? At the moment, the latest poll at our university presented today, 21% would vote for that. So it's, you know, that's, so 64% of them want to stay in the EU, no question, but 80% of them want to stay in the Union. 
Uh, I don't believe, by the way, it is only 21% for, for, for United Ireland. It could be much higher, but I equally don't believe it would be anywhere near a majority or anywhere near Scottish levels of support for, 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 for national independence. So those are, these are brutal facts you could lose sight of. And it's quite true about the 70 election. That's because for a whole number of reasons, a perfect storm against the DUP, the general election, 10% increase in their vote, pro-Europe, moderate Liberal Party like the Alliance Party, which it held, from, for, since 2010, for most of the time, the East Belfast seat absolutely destroyed yeah. in a Liberal seat by, by, by the DUP. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and those, that, that huge increase in the DUP vote is as important as the rise in the Nationalist vote if you want to know where Northern Ireland now is. On the question, just on these two other related points, so actually I don't think it's an issue. I think, again, it's like many facts related to the Brexit. People in London, according to their view of Brexit, interpret the latest story. Technology will work, will not work on the border. And, and there's no neutral fact now. People in London turn to their own view of what they want to see. Though there could be, it'll destabilize the union or not. There's no, it's all to do with what they actually think about Europe, rightly or wrongly, the people, the country is split down the middle. But there are these independent, stubborn Irish facts. And one of the independent stubborn Irish facts is the is, is the low vote for likely vote mm. for independent. Uh, but uh, you know, can I just say I one want, thing? I, I, I want to pick up some. Uh, I, I just questions. want to say there has to be an Irish language act. I just want to get that sentence out. Okay. I, I, by the D, and the answer to your question, what you need to give back to government, yep. they must agree to an Irish language act. I have a. The history of Irish language in the Irish Republic is not good. It doesn't matter. This is now a political necessity. Just to sh I just want to say that quickly when you ask the question, what do yeah. you need to get yeah. Scotland back? Yeah. The number one thing is the DUP has to agree to an Irish language. Don't you agree? And you're probably not that obsessed with the Irish language either. That's uh, no. you, you, a, a political fact. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, that's okay. a political fact. And that's not just a okay. matter for, yeah. uh, for Sinn Féin. Okay. Just in terms of the United Ireland point, I mean, after uh, the Brexit vote, I was the one who said to the then leadership that you know, very careful work was going to be needed to make sure that the precepts around the principle of consent that were central to the Good Friday uh, mm. Agreement were protected and would be reflected in the negotiations and mm. in any outcome. And it wasn't because I was looking to say, oh right, we now have to activate a border pool, but we had to protect that meaning. Mm. Of mm. the principle of consent, yeah, because we didn't yeah. want didn't want a situation where people would then try and say, "Oh well, it was a bit confused." In Scotland, didn't we know that if if you voted for it, you would then have to have a separate negotiation uh, to get into yeah. the EU? Yeah. So we had to make yeah. it clear that if a vote for United Ireland would mean that Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK yeah. that could rejoin the EU without needing an Article Forty Nine yeah. negotiation, yeah. and so and so we did it for that reason and it was to protect the meaning and integrity because if there was any doubt about that in the future it would have in yes. future created a crisis right. for you're constitutional nationalism you're the, people right. said, the people had said yeah. oh you absolutely bought into right. the principle of consent right. mean, thinking one thing at the time of the Good Friday Agreement and now it means something different or there's controversy about I it agree completely. Uh, because we couldn't afford either that kind of interpretation coming out of British absolutely politics right. or unionist politics or somewhere else in Europe where countries would say well we don't like the idea of a region suddenly state hopping, mm, mm. Uh, th that's destabilising for us, we don't like that precedent so we had to have it locked in that this was unique to and pre-sourced in uh, the Good mm. Friday Agreement. But the fact is yes, uh, you know, discussion around United Ireland is going to be there and, uh, and more live for a variety of reasons. Mm. One, it's because in circumstances where people feel that they are being patronised 
uh, by a lot of British politicians who are, you know, confecting nonsense that, you know, Leo Varadkar mm. is having his strings pulled by Sinn Féin and that it's all about, you know, electoral competition uh, in the South, whereas it is about the integrity of the agreement and the interests of the Irish people yeah. and not just the interests of the people of the South. Uh, it's, it's there and straight up. And so, yeah. and if people think that... So we're going to call the past. If, if, but, if, but if I still want to get questions And people have to remember that the agreement is a balance of institutional... Uh, provisions and constitutional provisions and I mean one of the key things that, that I think you know people don't credit Bertie Hearn and all his colleagues in government with is the quality of the changes to articles 2 and 3 of the Irish constitution and the way that was done yeah. just the nuance and the balance yes. uh, of that and yeah. it's not appreciated when people talk about oh you're talking about a backstop that affects the constitutional integrity of the UK people yeah. forget that there is a unique constitutional integrity to the Good Friday Agreement, not least locked in the mandate it got north and south uh, 20 years ago uh, today. Because remember, what we achieved then was articulated self-determination by the Irish people. That removed Sinn Féin's previous reliance on oh, the mandate from 1918 uh, that was thwarted and that justifies uh, continuing physical yeah. force. You had that mandate there, and of course, it was from unionism and nationalism alike. So the structures of the Good Friday Agreement are legitimate for unionists, because they're endorsed by a majority of people in Northern Ireland, their sense and source of legitimacy, and clearly endorsed by an overwhelming majority of the people uh, of the island as a whole, the nationalist sense and source of uh, legitimacy. So that is precious. But if people go about ideas of Brexit in ways that treat aspects of the agreement as though they are mere stud walls, whenever they're actual supporting walls, then there is then there is serious serious yeah. uh, risk and so the more we can get to rather than quoting the agreement as a problem in the way of brexit and an argument against Brexit, mm. the more we can quote the agreement as something that provides answers to a lot of those problems and conundrums about mm. how we handle things east west and north south mm. uh, into the future and if we're going to talk about backstops we should be turning it around so that the backstop isn't seen in this country has just been something that is there to leverage or condition British behaviour. We need to see that the backstop is something that guarantees EU attitudes and respect for that well, cooperation, north, south, and east, west into the future as well. Questions? Yeah. Would you like to say who you are, please? Uh, Ian McLean, Oxford University. Uh, did any of the panelists at the time or since compare? April 10th, 1998, with December the 6th, 1921, because the parallels to me seem astonishingly close, including that everybody who had signed in 1921 was out of office within a year, and two of them were dead. And would any reflection from that um, reflect onto the present situation which, uh, which uh, Paul and Mark have just been talking about? Really interesting point. I'm going to take another question at the same time. Over here, please. If anyone is in the next door room, I do stick your head round and wave at me and I will take your question. Thank you. Peter Jones, uh, WA Communications. Uh, you talked about what is necessary or what might be needed to uh, you know, reunite power sharing instalment. Is there any chance in terms of time frame that that can happen whilst the Brexit negotiations are going on? And if not, are the structures and uh, the agreements put in place by the Good Friday Agreement enough to then pick it up after Brexit? Or is there going to need to be something new and different put in place? Really interesting. Two very interesting questions, 1921 and 1998, um, and now, um, and, uh, and Stormont and Brexit. 
21. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I suppose that there was certainly a sense of um, a, a profound sense of of, of, of history uh, going on. I, I think that if you think of the vote in the South, you know, for Good Friday on this day 20 years ago, 94%, I think, you know, versus the Mansion House, 60, 64, 57 was the vote in the Mansion House for the treaty. So certainly in the South, there was an overwhelming support for this agreement in a way that wasn't the case in, in, December, you know, in mm. December, January 1921. So we had that wind, we, we had that wind behind us. But, I, but I, and, and, and also I think we had, you know, we had had a further, what, whatever, 70, 80 years of, of, of actuality of living. Abba Eben, the, the great Israeli um, uh, foreign minister, had, mm. had a great saying that men and nations do behave wisely once all other alternatives have been exhausted. <laughs> and, and I think that uh, the kind of uh, fatigue and weariness of conflict was a big driving force for us as well in 1998. Mm -hmm. that also because um, you tried everything else for a long time and, and nothing has worked. So I think all of those pieces were, be were behind us. And obviously, Paul has been making the point that the 71% uh, vote in the North meant that, in Northern Ireland, meant that, that actually there was a majority of both communities. Now that was a bit, that was a bit tighter, all right. But certainly we had the sense that, you know, the agreement itself here, a little bit of a flimsy document, even how prosaic agreement reached in the multi-party negotiations. Very poetic, um, you know. But um, that, that itself talks about the new beginning. So I think that was the key that's the key piece that we saw we were uh, mm. that where we were at you know and that we we saw ourselves that but we didn't quite have the i i think the tempest of 1921 uh, was certainly in the south mm. not as mm. no thanks uh, thank, and thank you for that quotation i'm not entirely sure israel has reached that point itself but, <laughs> um, yes paul what do you uh, what do you feel uh, either oh. on the 1921 or on the stormont and brexit bring us well, right i'm up. going to say i i know exactly and we didn't feel at that point as i was saying the parties were full of optimism and you're right of course that michael collins is dead rapidly and so on everybody else is either office on on, 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 mm. on, on mm. both sides and so the, the analogy is of course that deal that they made stuck. I have to say, when I think about 1921 now and that negotiation, I really think it's a template for what, how the UK should be negotiating with Europe now, which you have to re In other words, what Collins realised, that the only thing that really mattered was freedom to build freedom, and you might have mm. to take a lot of other stuff that you don't much like. But uh, if that's what you want to do, you, you, you do them, and, and they're yeah. all kinds of... Imagine accepting an oath of loyalty to the King and you're in the IRA. That is far more complicated than, or, or more humiliating, or whatever the word is, that any UK has been confronted with now. And I have to think it should be in a model of a practical negotiation. There's a certain substance here which were mandated in a case by the 1918 election, in this case by a referendum. I say this is a remainder, I'm just doing a thought, a thought uh, exercise. That's the model. That's what I really think about 1921 and its current relevance. It should be the model for the UK negotiation, that kind of pragmatism. And, and, and it shows in the end, everybody accepts Collins was right, it was the freedom to build freedom. Mm. And over a period of time, these things that you didn't like, you could whittle down. But on the thing about the return of the Assembly, I do actually believe it will happen. I don't think it's mattered that much, actually. They have nothing to contribute to the debate about Brexit. I won't be unfair to them, but not much. Uh, and the fact that the absence of their debate in the last the presence of the last year isn't so important. But I do, I do point, remind you all the backstop Paragraph 4950, negotiated by Theresa May, does contain language which is ambiguous anyway, but 
you can just about, especially if I've had a couple of gin and tonics <laughs> reading it, you can just about see how it could be the basis of a tolerable, reasonable set of working relations uh, that could be acceptable to the EU, to Ireland, North and South, but not without a working storm. There has to be the reference mm. of Para 49 to the importance of the maintenance of the Good Friday Agreement. If it's just a husk, you, you really have nothing in that backstop that you yeah. can. There may, there may not be, it may not be workable anyway, I concede that. But you have absolutely nothing without that institution and the North Side institutions attached to it that we talked about, the implementation bodies attached to it. It's just a husk, and therefore you do need it soon. And secondly, that's why I said now, and the reason why I is the DUP did come, we all know this, quite close to accepting an Irish Language Act. Uh, um, uh, there are problems, and I have. I have certain technical obsessions about how you could overcome the, the legislative problems here. Uh, I'm obsessed with possible answers, which probably are not real answers. Mm -hmm. But I do believe it will return within six months. I really do believe it will return within six months. Mm -hmm. And it has to for if we are going to be working with, if we get into mm -hmm. the, if there's another different benign free trade deal and whatever, mm -hmm. it matters less. But it's still desirable. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 it has to return within some months, a mm -hmm. period of time. No, well, thank you very much for that. Mark, what are your thoughts on Well, Well, first yes. of all, I, I can remember in 2002 I did the uh, address for the 80th anniversary of the death of Michael Collins at Bailenham Law, and I was making the point then that if you took collectively the institutions that, of the uh, agreement, we were bringing together for the first time, you know, the successors of all of the different strands that of in Irish opinion back at the time of War of Independence and after uh, Civil War and the, the establishment uh, of the two states, uh, etc., that we actually had institutions that were overwhelmingly mandated by the Irish people and by their inclusive nature had everybody involved, including people who disagreed with the agreement. And that was one of the reasons why we went for that form of inclusion, because we had built into the rules for the talks that there had to be this joint referendum. We needed to then make sure an agreement that didn't pass the referendum was going to be no good. We had to make sure we maximised support in the referendum. That was one of the reasons why we pushed for the elective inclusion in the way we did, because if parties thought these institutions are about keeping us in opposition, then we'll oppose the agreement to set up those institutions and then you would get uh, a lesser endorsement uh, for those arrangements. The other beauty about uh, that then was because we knew we needed to maximise support in the referendum, people had to, after all of the mutual engagement we had, there had to be mutual adjustment. Because yeah, people had to be able to stand over and sell uh, in uh, a referendum uh, that deal. And so that's why there had to be the adjustments that there were uh, on strand two, etc., etc. In terms of uh, things now, uh, I think we would be in a better position in Brexit if we had the institutions uh, up, running and working. Uh, something, well, I criticise how Sinn Féin and the DUP have conducted a lot of the stuff and yet again have privatised stuff between themselves in relation to the Irish language and all negotiations. In fairness, at a stage when, the, when there was multi-party uh, discussions, uh, there was a body of language about a number of the issues that an incoming executive would have to address and handle uh, with Brexit that was agreed. And thankfully, the DUP and Sinn Féin didn't either mm. go back into renegotiating that themselves or try and tear it apart. So hopefully some of that is still there. Now I know some people, like Ian Paisley Jr., have tried to turn around and say, well, Brexit isn't having any effect on anything. Sure, if you look at that draft agreement, Brexit wasn't part of it. Well, thankfully Brexit wasn't uh, part of it or meant to be. So hopefully 
the kind of stuff that the parties had at a more broad level uh, agreed can be dealt with. But we do need the institutions there. I mean, there's a dire irony that you have 27 EU countries saying they stand by the Good Friday Agreement, but the parties that are mandated <laughs> won't stand up yeah. the institutions uh, yeah. of the Good Friday yeah. uh, Agreement, and there's only so long that can be sustained. And if we can get back into uh, partnership working inside the institutions, then the, the fact is different other priorities and purposes kick in. You know, There's more of a shared purpose, more of a shared agenda there, whereas we're very much into the back-to-back -back politics uh, at the minute, and people suspect, oh, the DUP uh, are now just concerned about the only show in town being the, the confidence and supply deal or whatever. If you have the institutions, there end up being uh, issues that you're inevitably having to address together, and sometimes you surprise each other by the level of agreement. And at a practical level that you can find uh, on those issues uh, and you don't have the luxury of going off with wild rhetorical uh, choices all of the time so th the sooner we can get back into those institutions uh, the better uh, and well the, I know there was a point I didn't answer earlier but uh, no, 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 that's good. We, we might eat, yeah, okay yeah. couple we've got a couple more right at the back uh, in fact two at the back I'll stand up. Uh, Mary Dushevsky, a journalist. Um, I've got one question for Mark and one for Tim. Um, Mark, you placed great emphasis on language and you talked about language proofing um, and the importance of um, sensitivity towards language. Um, do you think that's something that's sort of been lost over the last 20 years? Um, and for Tim O'Connor, um, could you say something more about um, George Mitchell? And um, do you think that he was indispensable? And if he was indispensable, was it because um, he was an outsider primarily or because he was George Mitchell with that particular experience and uh, qualities? Thanks very much. I was in Washington for the Times at that, those years and uh, very interested in your... Okay, and uh, I'm Caroline Mersey from the Home Office. And one of the reflections, I think, looking back at the last 20 years has been that the Good Friday Agreement wasn't an end and a full stop. It's been followed by 20 years of process to implement it and deal with um, a lot of it, its outworkings. So will there ever be an end to the process or is the process the end in itself? Okay, thank you for that. Um, Akash. Yeah, thank you. Akash um, Parna, Institute for Government. Thanks. Um, so I think everyone on the panel has certainly said that thanks. Um, the, the ideal uh, solution would be for, for power sharing to be restored in, in, in Northern Ireland. But um, if it's not, or until it is, um, I mean, what, what do you think uh, should happen in the interim? And at, at what point, if any, should uh, Westminster formally imposed direct rule as, as happened um, from, of course, 2002 to, to 2007, um, you know, should, should, should that step be actually taken at some point and how, how would that work as well? I mean, Mark, you were, you were a minister or deputy first minister um, when, when um, devolution was suspended in the end for five years. So. Wasn't my fault. <laughs> no. yeah. Okay, great for that. There are three great questions to what is probably finishing uh, this discussion there from Mary uh, Language and George Mitchell from Caroline uh, Process um, uh, and myself and Akash, a direct rule, question mark. Let me, let me go from this side, Tim. Okay. Uh, George Mitchell, well, there, there were sort of, there are two, and in fact, I, I could actually combine the two questions, one, one bit about George Mitchell and Process because I, 
I, jo- I, 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 I was consul general in New York for a few years after, after, I, after mm. I left this and, and I, I would see him from time to time. And I suggested to him one day, George, I have it figured out. The Good Friday Agreement is the Irish Agreement. First we signed it, then we negotiated it. Sorry. Uh, I thought it was funny, actually. But, um, uh, that went very well, I thought. And, of course, we didn't even sign it, it's true. But anyway, the point being, yeah. that, the point being that the process of the last 20 years is actually about the, is the real negotiation. So until, you know, the, uh, and I think if you throw in the principle of consent into the middle of the piece, um, which does allow both, um, which does allow both, if you like, political philosophies to be living and in play, then it is a process. Uh, so I think that that's a big part of it. Anyway, George, um, George was, uh, is uh, still, he, he, he was back for several of the, um, the 20th anniversary. He's now in his, close to his mid-80s and looking fantastic. He, he's, a, he's an amazing person. I think there were two incarnations of him in this process. One was when he was chair of the talks and, and he played, a, I would say, a very important role uh, but I would say probably, in fairness, the, in terms of the driving forces, it was probably the two prime ministers uh, working with the parties and then George as a facilitator from time to time. But here's the bit that I want to add, add about George Mitchell that doesn't get as much uh, airing is the role he played 18 months later when he came back to be a kind of a mediator uh, in the impasse that had, that had sort of taken place. Don't forget, we had... We had our, this was a high water day, the 22nd of May 1998, and um, off we go. But actually the institutions didn't come into being until the 2nd of December mm. 1999. That's, that's nearly 18 months later. So what was happening mm. in those 18 months? Answer, uh, impasse. Mm. Uh, basically what David Trimble called, no guns, no government. And... Um, so we, the, the two governments, and I was part of all that, the two governments and parties, tried to do it all ourselves for about, a, for about a year. And then in July of 1999, who are you going to call? And George was asked to come back in. And what he did between the, the period of September 1999 to the middle of November 1999, I think, and I was actually... The, he, when he was wor- working as the, the chair of the talks, he had a, a, t- a talks team with him, from, including some colleagues from the United States. When he came back the second time, he was on his own, and a number of officials were assigned to him, uh, Bill Jeffrey and Jonathan Stevens on the British government side, and Dermot Gallagher, the Lord Mercy and Rory Montgomery, myself on the Irish government. So five of us worked with him t- for those two and a half months. So I saw up close. Uh, so his contribution to breaking that impasse was absolutely huge. Mm. So I think he's, his ability to, to um, he's a judge, he's, mm-hmm. he's a calm person, and you, you remember him very well, Brown, from being Senate Majority Leader. So he combines being politician um, and uh, judge and wise man, and then the piece that came that he didn't see coming was the personal piece, uh, which is his own, his own heritage. I don't know if you know this, but George Mitchell is, was adopted. I'm sorry, George Mitchell's father was, uh, was adopted, and um, George himself was, you know, the, so he's, and hadn't, he hadn't realized that his father was actually, was Irish. So through this whole process, uh, and there's a great book by Colm Tobin called Transatlantic, which explores mm-hmm. all of this. So I think George Mitchell as well got reconnected. So it was a very much a personal journey. So mm-hmm. I think history will judge that the contribution taken in the round of George Mitchell was, was, was profound. But I'd like to make the case for the, the second coming of George mm-hmm. Mitchell being really, really important and a bit overlooked. 
historically. That's a, that's a really important point. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. We've got uh, like a minute and a half each, yeah, something. But, uh, so your last, your last well, thoughts well, just, on... Just take the process, I agree. But the process is community psychotherapy. That's what it is, by the way. The fact that Stormont has not often been a very elegant form of government or even honest at times is not the point. It is a form of community psychotherapy and that's why, and that's its justification. Mm -hmm. That's why it has to be, um, between the elites at least, that it does trickle down a bit into the society. Oh, that's its justification. Community the point about process, I agree. Direct rule is a very interesting point. I would be very, very reluctant to see a, a formalized direct group, the reason I've just given. I don't think you can give up on that project of community psychotherapy. But I'm not, I do think there's a question. We shouldn't be so allergic to it. There are certain obvious things. I mean, one obvious thing is gay marriage, for example. But there are a number of things that it is not unreasonable to think that London might, my own view, by the way, is that Northern Ireland Assembly will do it relatively quickly anyway. Uh, uh, um, in, the, in the current balance, but as, as a matter of fact. But if it's not there, there are, I, I don't think this very passive form of direct rule they have, which I respect. And by the way, I think while everybody criticizes the two governments, you can't actually blame them. For 10 years, this thing was off the agenda. It was quiet, it wasn't a problem. And therefore, the number of people working on it or intensely involved in either government just inevitably dropped. Post Brexit, post the crisis of Stormont, it's now flared up again. But it's perfectly understandable that neither government for seven or eight years really gave it the attention it once did because it just wasn't that burning. Uh, but, the, but I do think that you have to be very careful about uh, talking about the um, implementation of direct rule. But I do think, and I, to core, I don't believe in it, but I do think we shouldn't be totally... There are things that you might conceivably do at Westminster in this period. One final point. I think the DUP makes lots of mistakes, but I don't think that they believe. They're not so stupid as to believe their current advantage at Westminster to subsist for a, a long time. They're perfectly well aware of the fact. It means that they don't have to do a deal this month or next, but they're perfectly well aware of the fact that they do actually have to do something. Uh, they just are. It gives them some time, but they do know. They're not so foolish as to believe that the status quo persists. Uh, eternally. That's one stupidity they're not guilty of. Thanks for your directness on that. No, yeah. no, you lost well, your thought. Well, well, the language uh, issue was important, and I gave examples of where we had worked with the Ulster Unions, probably in relation to sensitising for each other's language. But compared with, say, a four-party talks process that I would have been involved in in 92 and 91, the Brook and the Mayhew talks, you know, the, the multi-party talks process uh, was actually a lot easier as far as language was concerned. When, when parties there, you know, Northern Ireland parties tend to be conscious that they each have a different idiom around <laughs> how they speak. And you know, we can't say that because that's Hume speak, and somebody else can't say that uh, because that's uh, that, that's a unionist term. The the bigger table actually allowed the conversation to be bigger and to be freer. And so the contribution of people like the Women's Coalition, uh, for instance been able to bring in different language and more neutral language, often some of it you know, might have been academically uh, generated or influenced, but it was actually good and it widened the discussion. Somebody like uh, David Irving, able to bring in strands of issues and to colour issues in a way that maybe other unionists weren't able to do it. So it became a much more seasoned conversation uh, around the table. That shouldn't be underestimated. When, yes, the thing can be talked about as a top-down process, you also need to remember you know, somebody like Mo Molum was doing a lot of public engagement 
and almost trying to sort of do front of house stuff to encourage a degree of belief uh, in the process and to almost create a bit of positive pressure uh, on the parties. Mo was wise enough to know that she didn't have the temperament to be doing all the table work and handed that to uh, Paul Murphy by and large, who chaired Strand 1. When everybody talks about the chairing of the Good Friday, everybody forgets that Paul Murphy chaired the Strand 1 uh, negotiations. But Mo knew he had the temperament for that. Mo knew that her chemistry with the Ulster Unionist Party wasn't good. So she avoided a lot of that table work stuff. But instead, she concentrated not so much on the institutional stuff around the Assembly or the North South Ministerial Council. It was everything to do with the rights and the equality agenda and all of those other transformations and making sure those key principles uh, were going to be in there and making sure and trying to encourage parties to make sure that the inclusion wasn't just the party political inclusion, but would also be on things like the Civic Forum and all the rest of it as well. So that's uh, important. So we need to remember uh, all of that in terms of the uh, agreement. Mm. Uh, in terms of you know where things subsequently went, we did ask uh, Tony Blair at the time of the agreement to move on first past the post for the Northern Ireland seats because we said you are going to create a contradiction that we're meant to be working in a power-sharing ethic, cross-community working, but every time there will be a Westminster election, first-past-the-post means we're going to be convulsed into mm. demands for sectarian pacts and mm. other things, and that will destabilise things. Unfortunately, uh, that wasn't done. And then the St Andrews changes, which moved from uh, the First and Deputy First Minister be jointly nominated and jointly elected with a shared mandate from the Assembly, the St Andrews Agreement turned it into essentially reduced assembly elections into being a first past the post for first minister mm. sectarianising them mm. because it said the biggest party will be the first minister mm. and it will only be the biggest party of the uh, of the other designation who will be deputy first minister. So that meant that Sinn Féin and the DUP were straight away able to use the election to say it's about giving us the number of seats, it's about us bigging up against each other and so that sort of sectarianising effect that yeah. set in, in the agreement. Uh, and we're paying a price uh, for that since because it didn't just mean that in electoral terms you have that divisiveness and that further impulse towards polarisation. It also meant that within the Assembly, the kind of things that Seamus Mallon and David Trimble did of doing First and Deputy First Minister questions together, and I did with David Trimble, and we sat beside each other on the Ulster Unionist bench one week, and then we sat beside each other uh, on the SDLP bench the next week, and we answered the question instead. With Sinn Féin and the UP, it ended up being done entirely uh, separately. And when you're not appointed, when you're not yeah. jointly appointed by an assembly, you don't feel jointly accountable to the assembly. And it was the lack of joint accountability to the assembly that uh, imbued the degree of what many of us would have regarded as arrogance on the part uh, of the DUP and that attitude by Arlene Foster. No, I don't have to answer for this. I've got a mandate for the people in Northern Ireland. I've got a mandate from the people in Ireland. She's only a mandate from the people who go to DUP. That was all. And she didn't have the wider mandate from the Assembly. So I think if we are going to move forward, we should also maybe think about restoring some things to the factory setting of the agreement. And then for other things like strands two and three, because of the issues now with Brexit, we need to reboot those strands and fully use the bandwidth that is there in strand two and in strand three, rather than the very low-key uh, experience we've had of it to date. Mark, thank you. You've brought us, I mean, not, uh, not only to one incredibly important point about how things in an original agreement can, you know, uh, persist and have ramifications, uh, ramifications down the years, but also to an incredibly provocative one about whether the factory setting has to be reset, which we cannot possibly discuss now. Um, we're going to have to stop. Uh, I found this incredibly moving. We have spent a lot of time in 1998, uh, um, um, which 
is absolutely right, it seems to me. I mean, we've recreated the sheer difficulty, almost physical difficulty, of getting an agreement together. I, uh, as I said, I, I was in Washington at the time as Bureau Chief of the Times, uh, listening to the American side in particular of this, but the kind of will of all parties and governments to try to get this resolved by the end of the 20th century. And I've also heard it, I mean, it cited so many times in Kosovo as an you know, example of how, how do you get the police to work in, in the Middle East? Uh, there wasn't just a uh, it wasn't a flip reference to Israel, but I mean, much, much quoted in the Iraq context and so on of whether governments and, and different factions can be brought together and how Britain and uh, Ireland and the parties of Northern Ireland had managed to do this where many have failed. Well, I think what you know, we've managed to illustrate is not just how it can be done, but the many difficulties and the enduring difficulties of that. So look, thank you to the three of you for I mean, recreating um, um, the difficulties you went through at that point, the you know importance of personal factors, I mean George, George Mitchell and others, uh, and your directness about the present problems. We could go on, um, and indeed these questions are going to go on, but we're going to have to stop now. Um, so I'd urge you to um, join me in thanking the panel and come next door for a drink. Thank you. Thanks.